Chapter 10 of A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilden Carr. Chapter 10 Monadic Intercourse. Quote, Don Quixote affirmed the two flocks of sheep were armies with such assurance that Sancho actually believed it, and said to his master, And pray now, good your worship, what must we do? What? answered Don Quixote, but assist and support that side which is weak and discomforted. Thou must know, Sancho, that yonder host that fronts us is led and commanded by the mighty emperor Alifanfaron, sovereign of the great island of Trapobin and that the other belongs to his mortal enemy the king of the garamantians known by the name of pentapolin with the naked arm because he always goes into battle with the sleeve of his right arm tucked up from don quixote by miguel de cervantes if we accept the view of monadic activity which sees in the image and not in the sensation the essential expression of mind the problem of the intercourse of monads is completely transformed the psychological inquiry has brought us back to the metaphysical problem already indicated in the discussion of the windowlessness of the monad the problem whether in conceiving the knowledge of the monad to be solipsistic we are not thereby rendering an intercourse between monads inconceivable when we come to see however that intercourse depends not on the power of one monad to impart something of its substance to another but on its power to evoke aesthetic activity in another the problem is raised to a new and higher plane it's generally admitted that at some stage of its activity the mind forms images it is almost universally thought that this cannot be either the primitive or the essential function of the mind images seem in their very nature to be subjective and personal and supererogatory their value being proportional to their very similitude to some objective reality to which the mind is passive and on which the image is moulded ordinarily this something objective is assumed to be the external world which makes impressions on the mind but for the analytic psychologist it is perception and perception has generally been taken to be an association of definite and distinct and specific sensations on any sensation theory the problem of intercourse is insoluble because there is no way of association by which passively received sensations can become language and without language in the wide meaning and not in the narrow meaning which restricts it to spoken or written words there is no means of intercourse on the other hand when we conceive the mind in the first moment of its expression as an aesthetic activity that is as an activity which expresses its intuition in imagery as the necessary preliminary of translating living force into outward action then we see that the image is already language and the problem of intercourse disappears human beings possess in speech most highly developed and mobile language speech is indeed the distinctive feature of human nature and has probably more than any other endowment secured to man his present predominant position over other living forms it is dependent as we know on a special development of the cerebral cortex contrived to give the human will control over a varied and immense range of delicately coordinated movements of the muscles of mouth tongue larynx etc regarding the problem from the purely psychical side it appears to us that by whatever chance or concomitance of chances it originated language essentially depends on a logical that is a reasoning process and that it has developed pari passu with the development of our logical power nothing else seems necessary so far as mental conditions are concerned because man had this reasoning power no doubt at first feeble tentative and imperfect 
he had we usually suppose all the conditions necessary for discovering that there were other minds with whom by agreement as to external signs he could establish communication the reason why animals do not speak is popularly held to be because they are more foolish than we are that is more deficient as compared with us in the power of logical reasoning we pity them on this account and think of them as our poor dumb friends well undoubtedly spoken and written language is a refinement dependent on the intellect a special mode of mental activity and conditioned by a special neural formation in the rolanic area of the cerebral cortex language in its wide meaning as the communication by outward expression of internal intuition is not distinctively human and is not dependent on any reasoning process it is dependent on mental activity but on an aesthetic not on a logical activity it depends on images language means not that the sensitivity of one creature is communicated to another and certainly not that the thought or idea of one person is of itself conveyed to another person but that the image evoked by one mind can be made to evoke a corresponding image in another mind the problem of intercourse therefore is clearly connected with the production of an image what is the nature of this activity an image is not something which is a common object to two minds it is wholly private and personal to the mind which creates it intercourse therefore must mean that one mind can call forth the activity of another and the power to do so is intimately connected with the activity which creates the image originally this interconnection of the activity of two minds would be impossible were the image only a mosaic formed by the external association within the mind of its passive experience its data of sense intercourse is impossible and unmeaning if the interrelatedness it implies is conceived on the analogy of the ordinary action and reaction of things in the physical world such interaction is not and could not by any kind of transformation become intercourse if we want an analogy of the intercourse of mind with mind in the physical world we must seek it not in the kind of communication we discover in colliding billiard balls but in a phenomenon like that of wireless telegraphy in wireless telegraphy two instruments when tuned to the right pitch will respond to one another by reciprocal adaptation the communication between them being established by the hertzian waves by the use of the discovery intercourse is established between two operators if we complete the scheme by including the minds of the two operators we have an illustration of the relatedness of the monads in intercourse there is no interaction in the scientific meaning expression in one mind evokes corresponding expression in the other but that expression is not common to the two minds it is not shared by them it is not intercommunicated whatever form the expression takes in the individual minds whether it be perceptual or conceptual aesthetical or logical it is incommunicable only when the two minds are attuned like the instruments is their intercourse and the intercourse depends on the creation by each mind for itself of the appropriate imagery which expresses that accord let me illustrate what i mean by this psychical creation of imagery let us take a common instance of animal behavior below the human for example the behavior of the chicken newly hatched anyone may observe it very soon after its release from the egg the chick is running about with its fellows obeying the cluck of its foster mother pecking at objects swallowing some and rejecting others it is indifferent to the presence of many living creatures in its environment but immediately alarmed at the approach of others running with the rest of its brood to the protection of the hens covering wings the creature's behavior shows that it perceives and remembers let us assume that these faculties are part of its heritage the important questions i wish to consider are the nature of the mentality the mode of its working and the product of the activity of the creature's mind in so far as it is revealed in its behavior 
by a process of natural reasoning we suppose that the order of the creature's experience must be from without inwards its mind seems to be dependent upon the data it receives and as the creature appears to us to be richly endowed with organs of sense we conclude that these have an informing function and that the mind with its activity of perceiving and remembering shapes and forms this matter by a process which is ultimately reducible to association if any one will take the trouble to reflect on this notion it will immediately appear that it is the notion of an impossible process assume whatever inherited powers of perception and memory you like limit those powers to the direct and simple interpretation of sensations with their reflex or instinctive responsive actions and see if you can in any conceivable way construct the experience think what the process of reasoning must be which has to combine and integrate the multitudinous sensations simultaneous and successive visual auditory and tactile pleasant and painful graduated in intensity extensity and protensity into that range of conscious experience which constitutes the first day in the life of a chicken do not make the mistake of thinking it is simply a time difficulty let one day be as a thousand years to the chicken it is impossible to conceive the means by which it could bring the manifold sense into the unity of its experience but this difficulty is nothing to that of accounting for intercourse even that limited intercourse which we denote by the term gregariousness call gregariousness an inherited instinct if you will you must still form some concept of its mode of working how with a mind purely passive to the apport of sensation and active only in association can you account for the social actions of the creature to call it an instinct and leave its mode of working unexplained and impossible to explain is only to make more evident the bankruptcy of the notion that passivity to sensations and activity in logic exhaust the chicken's mind can we suppose the logical processes of perceiving and remembering associated sensations powerful enough of themselves to project sensations into the experience of another subject the important thing is not the length of time nor the complexity of the process but the utter impossibility of conceiving either its initiation or its success it is evident of course under any hypothesis that a newborn living creature such as a newly hatched chicken brings with it in its physiological organization a latent energy of past racial experience but this does not remove the difficulty it only throws it back according to the sensation theory however far back the organization of experience is projected experience consists and only can consist of sensation and association these being its ultimate and only factors the vice of the whole theory lies in supposing that the mind is essentially a passive endowment a faculty in a living creature of receiving a revelation of external reality and utilizing the revelation for the advantage of the living organism i conceive the mode of mental activity entirely differently to me it is essentially the translation of internal energy into external expression it works therefore from within outwards not as the other theory supposes from without inwards sensations are psychical but they are not states of mind and mind does not consist of states sensations play a definite part in the life of the mind but they are not little bricks out of which the mental life is constructed the little threads by which the pattern is woven or the formless stuff to which knowledge can ultimately be reduced when a new individual living creature such as a chicken is born or hatched its mind does not spring into existence when the active life begins its mind begins to find expression in living actions the creation of a chicken's mind out of a chicken's living experience is inconceivable for its mind is the whole of its past existing as latent energy that is as impulse and tendency 
this mind seeks expression and is dependent on it for imagery sensation is the occasion which evokes the imagery not the stuff of which the imagery consists all this argument when applied to the experience of a chicken may sound anthropomorphic and absurd but there is no need to suppose and the reader is not asked to suppose that the chicken's mind is finding expression in human imagery without being the chicken it is impossible to experience chicken imagery but we can know that imagery must be a condition of its mental life and further in taking an illustration from animal behavior we can set aside as irrelevant all theories of the nature of instinctive action whether the behavior of the creature be instinctive or intelligent it is inexplicable when we endeavor to translate it into or state it in terms of sensation theory because sensations do not give us the essential factor in the behavior namely imagery a sensation can be sensed it cannot be perceived or imagined only an image can be perceived memorized anticipated an image is a mental product sui generis it does not exist in its own right but in and for the mind which creates it in creating the image the mind gives expression to its intuition but why will not the sensation or at least a group of associated sensations serve the purpose of the image simply because the sensation is in its nature and origin purely subjective and internal and as such it must always remain in order that there may be action there must be objectivity and until there is expression there is no objectivity the whole controversy concerning the nature of intercourse has been obscured by the tacit ignoring of imagery as a distinct stage in mental activity because it has seemed that the image can be no other than the sensations into which it appears to dissolve on analysis it is assumed that it is no more and that it is in no way different and the problem has been to pass from subjective passively experienced states of the soul to objects identical for all subjects of experience the classical instance of this in the history of philosophy is the well-known attempt by thomas reed to meet the sceptical inquiry of hume by an appeal to common sense the appeal to common sense is based on the fact of human intercourse the philosophical argument is that such intercourse is impossible unless there exists objects in common to the communicating minds to be common to two minds an object must so it is argued be independent of both when ten men look at the sun there are not ten objects but one object though there are ten different perceptions of the object the argument is neither logically sound nor metaphysically necessary and it soon fell into disrepute but it is important because it is being revived today in the theories of the new realism as directed against the skepticism of hume the argument had a certain force inasmuch as both sides ignored and therefore denied or rather denied because they failed to discover any activity of the mind in knowledge activity they held was purely on the side of the object to hume this object was not distinct from the mind independent of it and presented to it for in his theory there was no mind distinct from the object nor object distinct from the mind the objects of knowledge and the knowing mind simply were the impressions and ideas which constituted experience and gave form to it by association it is exceedingly difficult to see how intercourse between minds on such a theory is possible and it seems to follow that if notwithstanding the logical difficulty we accept intercourse as fact we do thereby posit the community of a causal object why then did this dilemma of pure empiricism fail to manifest itself when the appeal was made to common sense simply because the same dilemma was inherent in the principle of common sense it is quite clear that in either hypothesis the hypothesis that there is or there is not a common object the ten men do not see the same sun and merely to affirm that there is an independent sun 
which no one of the ten men can see, but which is the sole active cause of all the different perceptions of the ten men, explains nothing at all. It merely affirms against empiricism the very belief which empiricism had challenged without offering any alternative explanatory principle. For empiricism, and for common sense alike, mind is a tabula rasa, dependent for all it is on the impressions it passively receives, and therefore, for both alike, the problem is how impressions reveal objects. The real failure of empiricism is that it identifies sensations with perceptions, and consequently ignores completely the specific activity in imagination. Our perceptions are, for empiricism, complex or associated sensations, and sensations are for the mind the given, out of which experience is constituted. Contemporary empiricists and realists usually distinguish sensations and sense data, or as some philosophers prefer to call them, sensibilia. The difference is not existential, both belonging to experience. Sensations to the subjective order, sense data or sensibilia to the objective. But the mind does not perceive sensations, it perceives images and images are not revealed or disclosed or discerned. They are wholly and completely a product of the mind's own active creation. The mind does not create in perceiving, but unless it had already created an image, it would have nothing to perceive. Imagination, in its pure and original meaning, is creative activity, and this creation is the essential nature of mind. When ten men look at the sun, what each perceives is the image which his mind has created to give expression to its intuition. It is this image he thinks of as agreeing, or not agreeing, with the image in the mind of each of his fellows. It is imagination, in its distinct literal meaning, the power of creating forms, and not merely the power of reproducing, or of more or less capriciously combining our actual or possible experience, which is the essential and fundamental spiritual activity. It makes intercourse possible, because the mind, in finding expression in imagery, is creating for itself language. Sensation is private and incommunicable. Independent objects are, so far as knowledge is concerned, otios. The empiricists, who appealed to the one, and the philosophers of common sense, who appealed to the other, had no third alternative. Knowledge for them must either be the mind's awareness of its own sensations, or the mind's passive response in contemplation to the action of independent objects, and both the alternatives are impossible. Neither party saw that the image which is the true object of perception is sui generis. Now it is quite clear that if there is intercourse between mind and mind, there is something communicable, and this something cannot be sensation, and it cannot be an object supposed to cause sensation, if the only possible knowledge of that object be the sense impressions it causes. Images are the language by which minds communicate. But here a difficulty will be raised. It will be said that if images are private and owned by the mind which produces them, then they are no more communicable than sensations. This would be so if intercourse implied a currency like the coinage passing from one mind's possession to another. Quite different, in my view, is the communication which language establishes between mind and mind. The first condition of intercourse is expression. A mind which, as yet, has not expressed its own intuitions, a mind which we can conceive, if we will, as reacting to external influences purely by internal sensations, clearly cannot communicate its experience to another for it cannot express its experience to itself. Finding expression is self-realization. This is the first characteristic work of the mind. It is the image-forming activity, or the imagination. It gives form to experience. It is aesthetic, for it depends on sense and sensing, not on thought and relating, and it is artistic, for it is pictorial, producing particular images. It also clearly is the first condition of intelligently directed action. 
I tread on a sharp stone or thorn, the pain sensation at once produces a reflex muscular action, but the sensation is no part whatever of the image of stone or thorn which my mind forms. It is this image which I perceive and which enables me to direct my next movement. I have therefore in my mind images. They are formed by my mind, and they are as particular and personal as my sensations. Wherein, then, lies their advantage? And how do they enable me to have intercourse? They indicate that my mind has found expression. Their advantage is that they have given me language, and language enables me to have intercourse. My mind interprets signs. It experiences the sensations, but it actively forms the images, and it is the images, not the sensations or the sensibility, which give to the mind its universe, the range of its activity. But this of itself is not sufficient for intercourse. Images are expression, but they do not of themselves take us out of our world or inform us of other minds. The second condition of intercourse is action. It is because expression is continued into action that actions can suggest expression. Intercourse is not action provoking reaction, but expressive action evoking new expression. When the intuition in my mind is found expression in imagery, it leads to action. And the action being expressive and not mechanical, itself evokes new expression and arouses the aesthetic activity in other minds. In the degree to which other minds approach our mind in its standpoint, will our expressive action excite the imagination, that is, the productive aesthetic activity, in other minds? And the more community of imagery there will be. It can never be identity, and there is absolutely no interaction between mind and mind in the meaning of concepts of conservation and compensation and causal continuity by means of which physics systematizes nature. The scheme of intercourse is a. The stimulus to a mind to exercise its own activity by finding expression for its intuitions. The stimulus may be sensational or emotional. b. The action in which the expression finds outward manifestation, voluntary and purposive c the activity which the action evokes in another mind primarily by sensation or emotion d the responsive expression of the other mind the psychophysiological counterpart so far as it can be traced seems to be a sensation the psychical manifestation of the functioning of peripheral neural organs communicating with their main centers in the spinal cord under the control of an inhibitory function exercised by the cerebral cortex b imagination the formation of sensuous images, the function of the cerebral cortex, c. Expressive action, the coordinated and integrative exercise of the voluntary muscles to produce speech or other linguistic action, the function of the motor areas of the cortex. Let me now illustrate the theory by applying it to various particular familiar instances. I see from my window a flock of sparrows and finches feeding on the lawn of my garden. I open the door to walk out, and the moment I approach the lawn where the birds are feeding, they take wing. Such action is voluntary and purposive. It is not reflex. We need not ask whether it is instinctive or unintelligent, as that has no relevance to the question we are considering. Is that action conceivable in the absence of an imaginative activity, that is, without the mental creation of images? Perhaps it will be said that visual sensation alone is in question here, and that visual sensation is already in its very nature imagery. Let that be granted. That is to say, let us admit that visual sensation cannot be disintegrated on the same scheme as that which we employ for the sensitive points of skin sensations. Yet visual sense data, or sensibilia, are conceived as discrete, as bringing nothing to consciousness but simple quality, as associated by pure external relations of similarity, contiguity, and causality. These will never give an image. Grant that the creatures have memory as well as sensitivity, that sense data are surely not conceived as retainable in memory, 
memory reproduces images, not sensations. Where do the images come from? The action of the birds clearly implies that the sensing man coming hither, to put it, of course, anthropomorphically, we possess no means of transforming human imagery into bird imagery. In the very nature of the case, that must lie beyond us brings before the creatures' minds the image of a visual or possible situation by which their action they can forestall. That is to say, the action posits an activity which cannot be identical with sensation or with contemplation, with merely passive reception of sense data, or with the unreciprocated action of independent objects in the mind. If anyone thinks otherwise, I desire to know how, without allowing to these creatures an activity of imagination, he can account for this factor in their action. For now suppose that I am in the habit of producing crumbs from my pocket and scattering them on the lawn. The action of the birds will be quite different. They will flock to the lawn instead of taking flight. But what difference is there in the sense data? None whatever. The difference is wholly in the image the birds have created. Let us take another example of animal behavior, but one involving actual intercourse between minds. I am going out. I go to the hall and take my hat from the peg, my stick from the stand. My dog follows my movements with growing excitement frisks and jumps impatiently around me. It happens, however, that I do not want my dog to accompany me. I order him back, a command he understands and obeys, with evident disappointment. Can that behavior of the animal be explained by any other way than by supposing an active creative imagination in the mind of the dog? Of course, I repeat, I have no means of correlating my imagery with dog imagery, but can I conceive the action if I admit no other factors but sense data and relations of association? One thing surely is clear. There can be no communication between my mind and the dog's mind by means of our receptive faculties. There is not one single object in our perspectives of the universe which is identical to us both. There is no means of correlating our respective systems of reference, no way on which we can agree on language by signs which are only signs. We must posit activity in each mind, and the only activity which renders intercourse possible is imagination. The dog's instincts, the pack, the scent, the hunt, are not my instincts. The dog's imagery is not my imagery. Nothing passes from the dog's mind to my mind, or from my mind to the dog's, but each has the creative imagination, which enables it to respond to sensation by expressing its own intuitions. And this makes significant action possible, action which can arouse another mind to responsive expression. My last illustration is from fiction. Don Quixote with Sancho Panza is in quest of adventures. Both see approaching them two great clouds of dust. These are raised by two flocks of sheep, which some shepherds are driving across the plain. Don Quixote at once recognizes the two contending armies of the mighty emperor Alifanfaron and of the king Pentapolin. The supreme moment of his life has come. On his action depends the issue of the conflict. Sancho Panza recognizes nothing of all this. To him, there are only the ordinary incidents of country travel, shepherds and flocks of sheep. Now, wherein lies the difference between the two minds? And in what way are they brought into relation? And what is the basis of their intercourse? Clearly the difference is not in sense data, nor yet can it be in any supposed independent objects. Both minds have the same data, insofar as physical reality is the causal source of their impressions. They each actually experience as sense impressions the clouds of white dust to analyze no further. The sense impressions awaken in one mind the perception of armies, in the other the perception of flocks of sheep. The only immediately apprehended objects are the dust clouds gradually revealing their cause, whatever it may be. Now it will be at once objected that according to the very story itself, we are supposed to allow that Don Quixote's imagination is insane. Sancho Panza's, however simple, is sane. Let it be so. 
it does not in the slightest degree affect the question of intercourse which i am citing it to illustrate the artist has heightened the effect of his picture by exaggerating the contrast each mind creates imagery and it is by the images and not by sensations or sense data that communication is possible the humor of the story is that the vivid imagination of the knight can impose itself on the commonplace imagination of the squire even to the extent that when the catastrophe has occurred and the hero is lying prostrate as a result of the hail of stones from the shepherds sancho can still accept the hypothesis of enchantment why then do we smile at don quixote for the unreality of his vision and at sancho panza for the ease with which his simple-minded realism is disturbed the answer in my view is that perception involves judgment and so marks the advance to another grade in the mental activity reality and unreality concern action as our story illustrates even don quixote who cannot entertain the hypothesis of the non-objectivity of his images must account for their failure to respond to the expectation on which his actions are based he can only explain it by positing the malice of enchanters intercourse then depends upon and is conditioned by the creative imagination exercised individually by each communicating mind there is a sentence of hegel which reads quote, the natural man sees in the woman flesh of his flesh the moral and spiritual man sees in the moral and spiritual being and by its means spirit of his spirit we may adapt this to the whole problem of monadic intercourse the plain man sees in nature an inert matter spatially and temporally determined out of which his mind and the minds of his fellow-beings have been formed and which presents itself to those minds as their common object the philosopher recognizes in nature the expression of the organizing activity of his mind and sees mind of his mind spirit of his spirit in the organizing activity of infinite individual minds each like his own self-centered and self-enclosed and each like his own seeking outward expression for its intuition and forming thereby its actions they are the monads the only reals a pre-established harmony but a harmony inherent in their existence and nature not imposed upon them by the transcendent act of a creator End of chapter ten Recording by Olivia.